Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. And as our children are exiting the sanctuary, let me share with you a few news, news stories involving children that were reported within about a six-month period of time uh, in 2014. The first occurred on April the 25th, 2014, when the fire department in Omaha, Nebraska, responded to a fire that heavily damaged a home belonging to a mother and her three children. Thankfully, no one was harmed in that fire, but it was determined that the fire was caused by children playing with matches. And then we read of another incident in the news on August 19, 2014, that happened in Superior, Colorado, where two family dogs and a cat were lost in a destructive house fire that authorities later determined was caused by children playing with a lighter. And then just a few weeks after that, on September the 2nd, 2014, in Wichita, Kansas, a seven-year-old boy and a five-year-old girl playing with a lighter ignited a fire that caused $12,000 damage to a home. And again, thankfully, no one was harmed in that fire. But the Wichita Fire Lieutenant Joe Evans said that that incident served to remind parents to make sure that they kept things like matches and lighters out of the reach of children saying that parents and adults need to treat these items the same as they would a loaded gun. That might sound like an overstatement until you realize that between the years of 2007 and 2011, an average, this is an annual average, of almost 50,000 blazes were attributed to people playing with fire, causing annual averages of 80 civilian deaths. That's not the total deaths from 2002. 2007 to 2011, that's an annual average. 80 civilian deaths, 860 civilian injuries, so that does not include injuries or deaths that resulted in public servants, the firefighters themselves. And an average, annual average of $235 million worth of property damage. And those statistics just leave you to wonder why are people, and maybe especially children, so prone to play with fire? given the fact that it's so dangerous. Why are there so many closet closet pyromaniacs in our midst? Some of you are probably here. They just love to watch stuff burn. Well, because if we're honest, there's just something irresistibly fascinating and mesmerizing and enchanting about fire. There's something exquisitely beautiful about it, and yet at the same time, frightening about its power. I mean, think about the power of fire. When it's treated seriously and with care, it can cook our food, it can give us light, it can provide warmth and survival from the cold, it can purify things. But when we treat it casually and disrespect it, it is dangerous and destructive and deadly. Actually, we could say that fire can lead to life or it can lead to death depending on how we approach it. And have you ever considered that God is a lot like that? We've already heard Josh read from Hebrews this morning that says, Our God is a consuming fire. And being in the presence of God can lead to life or can lead to death depending on how we approach Him. And there's a story in the Bible that illustrates precisely this truth, and it's found in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, uh, the third book in the Bible, the book of Leviticus, chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. So if you have that, Um, Please open to Leviticus chapter 10 in your Bibles. If you don't, 
We will display the text here on the screen for you to follow along. So Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3 is our text this morning. I invite you now to stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear the Word of God. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would make yourself known to us through the reading and proclamation of the word, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you would have us for this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Allow me just for a second to supply some background for this text. Nadab and Abihu are sons of Aaron, and Aaron and his family have been consecrated as priests in Leviticus chapter 9. In this episode right at the beginning of chapter 10, occurs right after the inaugural service of the tabernacle, which had just been set up by Moses. Moses had received instructions to build the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, and just now it has been constructed. The tabernacle was a place where God would dwell in the midst of his people. And that first inaugural service that happens and is recorded for us in Leviticus 9 is said to be a joyous and awesome occasion in which the glory of the Lord is revealed to the people and he accepts the sacrifices offered by the priests. In fact, the two verses just prior to what we've read in chapter 10 say this about that occasion. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting and when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And now this mood of joy immediately becomes tragic because the next thing that happens is fire once again comes out from the presence of the Lord, but it torches two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who are consecrated as service priests. And why does this happen? Well, it happens because of the importance of the glory of God in worship. It's one of the things that's impressed upon us in this text, the importance of the glory of God in worship. What this episode serves to remind us of is that the glory of God must be an essential characteristic of our worship of Him. The glory of God must be an essential characteristic of our worship of Him. And so we're going to consider the glory of God in worship this morning, beginning with looking at its importance conveyed the importance of the glory of God in worship conveyed. And indeed, it is conveyed in quite a dramatic and severe manner in the capital punishment of Nadab and Abihu. Now, we can ask and wonder, what exactly did they do wrong? What was their error? What was the problem here? We are simply told in verse 1 that each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized, or according to some translations, offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Now, there are actually a number of different interpretations that attempt to explain their error. One suggestion is that they were drunk, actually, when they went into the presence of the Lord. The reason this is concluded is because if you look forward in verse 9, 
you have this directive to Aaron and his remaining sons that they are to drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you when you go into the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, lest you die. So some connect this to what happens with Nadab and Abihu, but we're not quite sure about that. So others suggest that they didn't get their fire from the altar in the tabernacle, but instead acquired the fire for their censers in some other location which was unacceptable to the Lord. But they got it in the wrong place. And still others suggest that they used the wrong incense. According to Exodus chapter 30, God provided a specific recipe for the incense to be offered to the Lord. And perhaps Nadab and Abihu used a different formula contrary to what God had commanded and therefore they were put to death. Now these are just possibilities because in the end it's hard to say exactly what they did that caused their punishment. Other than what the text says, they offered strange fire in violation of God's command. But we can be clear about why they are punished in this manner. We're not quite sure exactly what their error was, other than, again, they offered strange fire in violation of God's command. But we can understand why they were punished in this way. And it's because we read in verse 3 that the Lord is insistent upon this. Among those who are near me, which is a reference to the priests, I will be sanctified, or I will be regarded as holy. And before all the people, meaning among the entire congregation in the midst of whom he dwells, I will be glorified. So the actions of Nadab and Abihu somehow obscured the holiness and the glory of God. And that was unacceptable. But how would one obscure the glory or the holiness of God? The glory of God is obscured when we take God or his word or his worship lightly. The glory of God is obscured when we take him or his word, or his worship, lightly. Now, why would we say that? It's because the Hebrew word for glory carries with it this idea of heaviness. In fact, in some instances in the, in the scriptures, it's translated as being heavy. Most of the time it's translated as glory, but it can be translated as being heavy. There's a sense of heaviness with glory, like in the sense of something being serious, like when we're talking about a heavy topic, or perhaps to put it in other words, there is a weightiness to God. And there is a gravity to the worship of God that is essential. So we need to have a sense of the weightiness and the gravity of our worship when we come before him. It is not something we are to take lightly. It is not something we are to regard flippantly. But what would that look like? What would that look like for us to take God or the worship of God lightly or flippantly. Well, that leads us to the second thing I want us to consider, and that's the glory of God in worship and the implications considered. It's implications considered for us. Now, it's true that the implications of God's glory would extend to every area of our lives, but it seems like the most fitting sphere in which to explore those implications from this text is in the context of our corporate worship, like what we're doing now. Because this occurrence in Leviticus 10 clearly happens in a corporate context where the people are assembled together, gathered together to meet, to worship God in his presence under the direction of the leaders of the congregation, in this case, the priests. And so this seems to be the most fitting sphere to explore those implications. Interestingly also, according to the beginning of Leviticus 9, this event happens on the eighth day. 
Now, the eighth day is the day after the seventh day. And the seventh day is a reference to the last day of the week, which according to the Jewish calendar is the same as ours, would be a Saturday. And so the eighth day would be the next day. And so if you're following me, it's a Sunday. And so actually, Leviticus 10 is happening in a Sunday worship service. Just like similar to how we're meeting this morning. Gathered together in a formal way to meet with God and render to Him worship. So that's how we're going to explore these implications. And just like in Leviticus 10, God's glory must be an essential feature or characteristic of our worship of Him. God's glory must be essential for us to worship Him. But like Nadab and Abihu, we're also in danger of obscuring the holiness or glory of God. In danger of taking God or His worship lightly. What kind of dangers do we face? How can we be guilty of doing that? Well, one way would be not giving proper place to God's word. Taking God's word lightly. Note that we're told Nadab and Abihu are put to death because they disobeyed God. They offered unauthorized fire contrary to what he commanded. They did not heed God's word. And we take God lightly when we don't obey his word when his word is not central, when we don't treat it seriously, or when it's absent from our worship services. That's one of the reasons why we have people stand for the reading of God's word before the preaching of scripture. To show it proper reverence, to give weight to it. It's one of the reasons we want our services to be saturated with God's word from the beginning to the middle to the end. But another way in which we could also take God's worship lightly, is when we aim for an atmosphere of coziness or entertainment more than we're aiming for an encounter with God. And that would look like we're making it our aim to hear brief, keyword brief, motivational, positive pep talks that will help you feel good about yourself and good about your life by encouraging you to do more and try harder all keeping a certain degree of levity. And when you hear me say the word levity, think lightness to what it means. Maintaining a degree of levity, mostly by not talking very much about the reality of our sin, our need to repent of those sins, and our desperate need to turn to Jesus alone for the salvation of our sins. And all this taking place in a relatively short service that doesn't require too much of your schedule in a laid-back, relaxed setting. Now, I don't know about you, That just doesn't sound very weighty to me. If that's our aim, that doesn't sound weighty. And you look at these two and you think, well, we're off the hook here at New Life because we don't have wordless entertainment-driven services. Well, perhaps not. But here is something that we have. And you're probably not going to like it that I'm going to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. We have a lateness problem at New Life. There are very few people here in this sanctuary, in this place, at 10.30 on any given week. In fact, I'm guessing that almost half of us missed the call to worship this morning. You weren't in here. That first instance in which God's voice goes forth speaking to us in Scripture, extending a gracious invitation to undeserving sinners to enter into His presence to give Him praise and worship. Eh, eh, big deal. 
I don't need to be in there for that. I don't need to be in there to hear that gracious invitation. Now I recognize that there, there may be a hundred explanations going through your mind right now to justify why you're late from time to time. And some of those may be valid. I'm not saying this. Some of those may be valid. What we have to ask ourselves is, do we communicate to God and to others that we take worship seriously? That it is a weighty thing for us when we stroll in here in the middle of the first song or routinely come in in the middle of the second song? Is that what we're communicating? That we take this seriously, that there's a weightiness to all of this. Now, you might be taking worship lightly in other ways that are connected to being late, and that is, maybe you're staying up too late the night before. Staying up to 2 a.m., 3 a.m. on Saturday night. And so you come in and you're not prepared. You're not focused. You're not fresh to render to God worship. In fact, you might find yourself nodding off. Is that how we worship a glorious, weighty, holy God? And there are other ways too. You, you might be alert, but you might be checking your cell phone. You might be checking updates on Facebook during worship. There could be all kinds of instances in which we don't take worship seriously, that we make light of what happens here. The question we need to ask ourselves is, are we exalting the glory of God in our worship? And if visitors came in here, would they conclude that the God we worship at New Life is a God of glory, that he's weighty and he's holy and we take it seriously? Would people conclude by observing our worship that the God we worship is awesome because we're in awe of him? Listen, if we, just, if we don't think worship is that big of a deal, if we don't think it's life-defining and life-transforming, why would the world conclude, ever conclude that the God we worship is great and glorious? Why would they conclude that? Now, I, I don't mean to say here that our worship should be solemn. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. We delight in God in our worship. We take joy in God in our worship, but it's a weighty joy. And you might think, well, that's impossible. There's no such thing as a weighty joy. Well, look at what uh, Psalm 2.11 says. Serve the Lord with fear. Now, that verb serve could also be translated as worship. Serve the Lord with fear, and listen to this, rejoice with trembling. The scriptures seem to think it's possible to have a weighty joy. Rejoice with trembling. Perhaps maybe the way you could think about a weighty joy is think about a wedding ceremony. We just had a wedding ceremony here yesterday that Eric prayed for. Josh and Hannah Katner were married. And it was a festive occasion. The ceremony was full of joy and laughter and smiles and thanksgiving. But there was a seriousness and a gravity to the ceremony as well. There was a sense that something weighty and something life-changing was happening at that point in time because it was. That's what our worship services should be like. Weighty celebrations full of joy, but not light and not frivolous. A weighty joy. Interesting thing about weddings. I asked someone 
who I saw at a wedding, who was dressed up really, really nice. And I asked the person, why don't you wear that to worship when you worship at New Life? And the person's response to me was, well, this is a wedding. Make no mistake about this. What is happening right now is that in our spirits, we are joining with the saints and the angels around the throne of God in heaven. Right now, we are joining that chorus to render praise and adoration and worship to God. That's what's happening right now. And that is more glorious than any earthly wedding ceremony. Do you believe that? And do we act like we believe that? That what happens when we are gathered together is more glorious than anything else that we do? Well, you might be feeling a little beat up, guilty, inadequate. That's not my intention. And it's not just you. It's me. I missed the call to worship two weeks ago. You know why? I was collecting Girl Scout money for cookies. That's not a very good reason. But so we're all struggling with this, but it gets worse. It does get worse because even if you're here on time, even if you're staying off your phones and your electronic devices, even if you're paying attention, even if you're lifting up your voices in praise to God, our worship is still deficient at the level of our hearts. Our worship is still deficient. Charles Spurgeon, a preacher in England in the late 1800s, is right to confess this. The best worship that we ever rendered to God is far from perfect. Our praises, how faint and feeble they are. Our prayers, how wandering, how wavering they are. No one here is entirely fixed upon God in awe. None of us. No one here is loving God with our whole heart, mind, soul, or strength as we're commanded to do. As true as it is that the glory of God in worship must be an essential characteristic of our worship of Him, it is also equally true that we are incapable of rendering and ascribing to Him the worship and the glory that is due His name. It's an impossibility for us to do it as we should because of our sinfulness. And so we read a story like Leviticus and we presume that that's not going to happen to us when we enter into the worship of God. But we shouldn't presume that. We shouldn't presume that, given the deficits of our worship. But that brings us to our third point, and that is we need to consider the impossibility conquered. God has conquered the impossibility of our rendering to him acceptable worship. Now, of course, we might simply conclude that we're better worshipers, or at least less sinful than Nadab and Abihu were. That's false. That's false. We might also conclude that, well, the story in Leviticus is in the Old Testament. But we live in the New Testament, and God isn't like that anymore. That's also false. We just heard Josh reading from the New Testament, and it says, Our God is, not was, a consuming fire. So that's false as well. And again, we might be prone, tempted to wonder why this happened to Nadab and Abihu at all, because this kind of stuff shouldn't happen. But perhaps the better question is why this doesn't happen more often, given the glory and holiness of God and the reality of our sinfulness. But the reason it doesn't happen 
is because God in his grace and mercy has conquered the impossibility and removed the threat of his wrath. That's why. It's vitally important that we understand that in the book of Leviticus, the first seven chapters, so right before we get to this episode, the first seven chapters are taken up almost entirely with instructions about the sacrifices the people were to bring before God. For seven chapters, it's talking about that. The sacrifices that the people were to bring before God. Because God provided everything the people needed in order to come into his presence in worship and live. He provided for them acceptable sacrifices that would be consumed so that they wouldn't be consumed. He provided for them a substitute that he would accept on their behalf. And all of these sacrifices are pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They're all pointing forward to Jesus. Jesus is our sufficient offering and sacrifice to appear acceptably before God in worship. And the reason he is sufficient for that is because in an even more profound way than Nadab and Abihu, he willingly bore the consuming fire of the Father's wrath on the cross in order to pay for all of our sins and deficiencies, not just our deficiencies in worship, all of our sins and deficiencies. He bore those on the cross so that we would not bear the punishment for them. And Jesus did this. He suffered the Father's wrath, not so that we would merely be tolerated in God's presence when we come to worship, but that we would be received and welcomed in love and delight as beloved children. The cross shows the extent of God's commitment and love to welcome us into his presence. The Bible tells us that when Jesus died, the curtain that was barring access to the most holy place in the tabernacle and the temple was torn, showing us that we have access, free and bold access to the Father by faith in Jesus. Not by the blood of animals, but by the blood of Jesus, the sufficient sacrifice for us. But apart from Jesus, you will end up like Nadab and Abihu. Apart from Jesus, you will in time, when you stand before God, end up like Nadab and Abihu. This episode serves as kind of this intrusion of end time judgment as a warning to them and a warning to us. But remember this, Nadab and Abihu didn't have to die. God had provided them everything they needed to appear before him and live in joy and security. But they had to come on his terms on the basis of the sacrifice that he accepts. That's still true. That's still true. God has provided everything we need, but we have to come on his terms. You could state it like this. You can stand in the presence of a holy God and inherit eternal life and glory, but only on his terms. By faith in Jesus with his death as your only offering and his resurrection as your only hope. Listen, this is really, really important. I am not accepted in the presence of God because of the quality of my worship. I am accepted in the presence of God because of Jesus and because of what he's done. And the same is true of you. 
Are you claiming Jesus by faith as your only claim before God? If you are, then you have the only offering you will ever need to live in the presence of God in glory and be accepted. If you're not claiming Jesus by faith, then let the judgment of Nadab and Abihu be a warning to you and lead you to repentance and turn to Jesus by faith. In the wisdom of God, and uh, band, you guys can come, come forward. The last thing I want you to see is that in the wisdom of God, the thing that spares us from the fate of Nadab and Abihu is the same exact thing that motivates us to observe the glory of God and worship with proper seriousness, weightiness, and joy. It's the gospel. The gospel spares us from sharing this, but also motivates us to render that kind of acceptable worship with reverence and all. Because if the Father gave His Son for us, and if Jesus willingly suffered the consuming fire of the Father's wrath in order to secure our access to God in worship, are we going to stroll in here leisurely, chomping our gum, sitting down, checking our phone, looking for an excuse to go out, wandering the sanctuary or the uh, foyer for a little while, get up a little bit, think this is all pretty cool, pretty cool deal. Or isn't it the case that we would instead, if we understand the gospel, that we would count it as a joy and a humble privilege of amazing grace to make it our aim to prepare our hearts to be here so we can soak it all in and ascribe worth and weight to a glorious God who has seen fit in his grace to set his affection upon us undeserving sinners and demonstrate his love for us in the offering of his very own son. You see, the gospel compels us to render worship to God. Imperfect worship, but sincere worship. And know that it's accepted by the Father and it delights the Father's heart because it has been made perfect in Jesus. The name that we praise, the offering that we bring, and the name in whom we trust when we come into the presence of God. May God give us grace to glorify him in our worship. Let's pray. Father, we confess this morning our deficiencies. As we've already confessed this morning, we are easily impressed with created things and stand in awe of them and revel in their glory while neglecting you. We acknowledge that and yet we rejoice that the impossibility of our standing in your presence in our sinfulness and living has been conquered because of the sending of your son. We claim his name and we rejoice that we are accepted and delighted in, in him by you, Father in heaven. We thank you for that in Jesus' name.